Hello, I'm Dr. Luke Notif. And I'm Dr. David Flannery. And welcome to Pale Blue Dot. This week, we are going to have a special guest. Ooh, a special guest. Have one of those every week, but I'm still very excited. Who's our yes. special guest this week? Our special guest is you, David. Me? You're our resident expert for this week. So why are we going to talk to you, David? Just remind me. That's a very good question. Why would you talk to me? So you're involved with the Perseverance Mars rover? That's right. Yeah. I'm a long-term planner for the Perseverance rover mission. I used to work at a place called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a NASA center in California, which built Perseverance. So we're going to have our rover roundup. Our weekly rover roundup. We're yes. going to go through uh, the instruments aboard the Perseverance rover. And we are going to do Pixel this week. Ah, Pixel, my favourite of the instruments. Well, you've had an intimate association with Pixel. I, I have, yes. When I uh, first joined NASA JPL, we had just proposed Pixel. I helped to develop the instrument from a very early stage. We were eventually selected to fly on the rover and we, we built this instrument up and it's just landed and started generating data just a couple of weeks ago. So what does Pixel stand for? Pixel is a clever... Um, abbreviation uh, coined by uh, Abby Allwood, who's the principal investigator of Pixel. It stands for uh, Planetary Instrument for X-ray Lithochemistry. Pixel's job really is to perform elemental chemistry measurements. And so we can measure the composition and characteristics of rocks in a bunch of different ways. But the two big things you want to know generally are what the rock's made of on an elemental level. You know, how much calcium's in it and iron and silicon, that sort of thing, and what minerals are present in the rock. And so you do the former with with um, X-ray fluorescence, typically, is your gold standard technique in laboratories on Earth. And the latter, the mineralogy, you can do in a number of different ways. Most commonly on Earth, you use X-ray diffraction or vibrational spectroscopy. And Pixel lives on the end of the rover's arm, and it shares that space with a different instrument called Sherlock, which figures out what minerals are in the rock. And the two techniques combined are a really powerful technique for analyzing uh, any features that we come across on the surface of Mars. So it does this at a high spatial resolution? I'm, I'm glad you asked, Luke. I'm yeah. glad you asked because that's the key innovation in, in Pixel is that instead of sitting on a rock for a couple of hours and generating one measurement of the different elements that are present in the rock, and their concentrations, we typically report in weight percent. Um, Pixel actually, in that same amount of time, will generate thousands of individual measurements. And by doing that, we can turn each measurement into a pixel on a map and then create an actual map of the chemical composition of sedimentary features. And that's why we call the instrument Pixel, because we make pixels. The Pixel is essentially a, a lab-based instrument that is fairly common on earth. Every university will have one. Um, a lot of analytical centers will have X-ray fluorescence instrumentation, but turning it into a really small, really low power device, you can fly into outer space and to an environment that's radically different to ours. Like in a laboratory, things are pretty well controlled. You know, the temperature, atmospheric pressure remain the same. We even mush up all of our samples and turn them into glass when we do XRF on the earth 
Mars is much harder. You know, every day the atmospheric pressure changes, the temperature swings to over 100 degrees Celsius. We have to place ourselves on these natural rocks, which are made of all sorts of different things and they have different shapes. And we sometimes don't get as close as we want or as far away as we want. All sorts of things can go wrong. And so when it actually comes time to, to design and build the instrument, there's actually a lot to think about, more than you would if you were building this thing for a lab. So how, how, how did you go about resolving some of those problems? So well, generally that the process at NASA JPL, which is definitely the world leader in this sort of thing, it probably starts with a problem. You know, the problem in this case is how are we going to perform these measurements on Mars? Right? And then a scientist has an idea. Hey, maybe we can use this technique that worked well for us on Earth. And then those scientists will get together with some engineers and a place like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory it's a few hundred scientists and thousands of engineers. So you go to your engineers and you say, hey, can you help us design something that'll actually work that uses this technique to make these measurements in this environment? And together you come up with a proposal. And then when it comes time, uh, NASA will open for those proposals for instruments on something it's doing, like sending a rover to another planet. And you throw your hat in the ring. You say, look, we've got this idea for this instrument. And if you're lucky, NASA will throw a few tens of millions of dollars at you to develop it to a to a bit a better level the design phase has turned into the implementation phase and we know now it's we're receiving data from it we are we just got our first elemental chemistry maps back from mars it's very exciting data not what we expected to see um, but that'll have to be the subject of a different podcast because it's currently embargoed Let's go back to the, the overall Perseverance rover mission goals. Yeah, so one of the main goals of this mission, the Perseverance rover mission, is astrobiology. Uh, we're looking for signs of life, uh, past life in this case, in the geological record of our landing site in Jezero Crater. And so we built Pixel to analyze sedimentary features. So when we come into a new sedimentary environment, we try to figure out what the conditions were like in the past and what's happened to those rocks after they were created. So in Jezero Crater, we've got a lake and we've got a bunch of different sedimentary features like sand grains that get moved around the bottom of the lake, minerals of different chemistries and, and, uh, and so on. We can analyze them with an instrument like Pixel and figure out what the conditions were when that environment was depositing the rocks. Hang on, hang on Dave. Are you saying that we can see we can analyze the chemistry of a grain of sand on another planet. We can, we just did last week. And in fact, we did it about 2000 times because uh, we've got 2000 different pixels and there are lots of different grains in the rocks we're looking at. What are we actually looking for specifically and how do we know that we're looking for that? We don't really know what we're going to find when we go to a different planet and land somewhere entirely new, but we know that we're definitely going to come across rocks and rocks that can tell us a story about how they formed. And so we can use instruments like Pixel to figure out how all sorts of different rocks form. Maybe they're sedimentary rocks that were deposited in a lake. Um, maybe we can even come across evidence for past life that lived in that lake. So David, you mentioned Earth and the early life on Earth. How does that inform what we're doing on Mars? Well, for the vast majority of Earth's history, we didn't have animals and plants. And that's what most people think of when we think about fossils. But what about the rocks that are even older than that? I mean, for the first 4 billion years of our planet's history, 
the only organisms we had inhabiting our planet were microbial. They were really small. And so we think that if we find life on Mars in these rocks that are many billions of years old, we should probably look for the same types of features, these uh, signs of past life left by, I won't say simple organisms because they're actually quite complex, but very small and, and hard to detect. So how do we go about identifying microbial fossils and what is a microbial fossil? Well, if you're interested, and if you're one of our listeners, you can delve into the scientific literature. There's a massive body of work that's accumulated over the last 70 years or so. Um, but maybe I could summarize it by pointing out, well, maybe it's about five or so different categories of lines of evidence. So if you're really lucky, you might find a fossil of an actual cell of a microbe. That cell is going to be really small. I mean, the diameter of it could be about the diameter of a human hair. And so you really need to slice your rock up and put it under a microscope and look really closely. If you do that, you might find the actual body fossil of a microbe. But it turns out that's extremely rare. Yeah, yeah that's, that sounds like hitting the jackpot. So. Total, total jackpot. And you can't yeah. see it until you get it under the microscope. So we'd be very lucky to find something like that on Mars. Although we'll definitely be looking. Uh, the second category are fossils of microbial communities. So microbes typically don't hang out alone. They generally get together in communities and help each other out with different services. You know, hey, why don't you produce some oxygen here? Oh, that's great. I'll you know, make some sulfur in this oxidation state. You're going to use it. And they, they cycle these elements together. Uh, usually on the surface of the planet, the bottom of a lake or the ocean, they'll form a microbial mat. And we have uh, analogs of these um, features growing today in uh, places like Shark Bay in Western Australia and the Bahamas in particular, where we see these features called stromatolites, which are these um, domes and columns that represent the growth of microbial mats over many thousands of years. And so that's one example of the sort of larger scale microbial feature we could find on Mars. So microbes making rocks. Microbes make rocks. They do it right now in, in the modern the modern day, and they've been doing it for many thousands of millions of years on Earth. So those microbes, are they the same as the microbes that are living today? Microbes are everywhere, as we know, We're, even in the human body. We're basically driven by uh, microbial life. Yeah. Are they the same microbes or are they different microbes? It's one of the greatest questions in, in paleontology, isn't it? So if it's a fossil animal, you can tell if it's changed. Uh, well, you can't see its genes, but if it looks the same, well, it might be the same species. But with microbes, they can be radically different types of microbes doing radically different things in terms of their metabolism and, and ecosystem niche, but they might look exactly the same as, as a fossil or as a, a stromatolite. And so we have to use a bunch of different other techniques to figure that out. But I'd like to um, just um, emphasize the point that you just made there, that this is still a microbial world we have this overlay of plants and animals and that's what we notice because they're large and we sort of hang out with them every day, but the planet's still run with by microbes. We're just a pimple on the bum of this microbial superorganism. In fact, even our own bodies are mostly microbes. Most of the cells in your body digesting your dinner and helping you move around. They're not even you. They're other microbes. So uh, if people think we're top of the food chain, uh, I think they're sadly mistaken. We're just the meat bag for the yeah. microbes that are running the show. Essentially. So yeah. That's where all of the, the metabolisms are. That's where all the genetic diversity is. They are really keeping the planet habitable and cycling all of these nutrients. And they have been doing that for billions of years. 
And so one of the big questions in this field of study is when did these innovations first evolve? For example, when did the ability to generate oxygen first evolved? That's something that changed our planet forever. Obviously animals can't evolve without oxygen. And so we're trying to look into our geological record and, and figure that out. So David, uh, you mentioned there was five types of lines of evidence. Uh, so we've gone through two of them. What are the other three? So we went through, what did we go through? We went through microfossils and macrofossils, two different yeah. scales of microbial fossil. So we also have organic material itself. You know, we're made of organics. Microbes are made of organics. When we die, we get buried in the, the sediment and that organic material can stay there for billions of years. So we can actually extract those organics in the lab and run them through instruments like gas chromatographs and mass spectrometers and figure out what made that organic material because certain organisms make certain types of organics um, and these molecules are known as, as biomarkers. Is there any instruments on perseverance that can analyze those organic biomarkers? So Viking, which landed in 1976, was the first land ascent by NASA. It carried a GCMS, one of these gas chromatograph mass spectrometers that can sort out all the organics and, and tell us all about it. And the Curiosity rover sent the second GCMS, and it's still using that in Gale Crater. Um, and Perseverance actually doesn't have a GCMS, so we can't do that really good job with wet chemistry of extracting those molecules, but we can detect them through other, other means. And one of the ways we can detect them is by using Sherlock. And Sherlock uses a laser to measure the uh, vibrational states of uh, molecules, including uh, organic molecules that, that could be present. But to be clear, organic compounds doesn't mean, doesn't equal life. Yeah, so that's an interesting mm -hmm. distinction, isn't it? So a lot of people think, yeah, we've found organic molecules, uh, they're organic, so they must be evidence of life. But it turns out, uh, if we look out into space, our solar system and the universe uh, more broadly is full of organic molecules. And uh, you look at other moons in our solar system, like Titan, and it's just absolutely brimming with organic molecules. But as far as we know, there's no life there. And so on Earth, everywhere we see organics, we assume they're from biological organisms. But what if you went to a world that had no biology at all? Well, you'd still have some of these organics because they'd be raining down uh, with micrometeorites every day from space. So uh, we've got two more to go. What are they? Let's see, we went through uh, small fossils, large fossils, biomarkers. What about isotopes? Would you call these chemofossils? Maybe they're all chemofossils uh, in some sense. Well, yeah. actually, let's step back a bit and think. Sometimes you get several different types of biosignatures, of lines of evidence, together. You get mm -hmm. this suite. And really, you want the, the suite because any one of these different types of biosignatures, they can be mimicked by non-biological forces. And so what you want to do is have multiple lines of evidence all pointing at the same conclusion. So for example, you might find a, a stromatolite that has organics in it, biomarkers. It might even have microfossils preserved in it. And those microfossils might be made of organics that have isotope ratios that are consistent with biological metabolism. So you'd get all, you get four different types in there. And what's the last one? The last one, would be, uh, let's say, patterns of chemical enrichments. And so sometimes you get um, 
different uh, chemical elements, like um, particularly trace elements that are present in small concentrations, uh, fractionated in certain ways that uh, are characteristic of biological organisms. And so you might have heard in the news this week, I saw an article on the origin of prawns in Australia. Some scientists were trying to figure out whether prawns being sold as Australian made prawns were actually made in Australia. And that to do that, they were mushing them up and looking at the, the patterns of trace elements in them. Turns out prawns from different parts of the world have different trace elements. And that's because the, uh, the biological organisms are um, taking up those trace elements and uh, moving them around in different ways. And so that's, that'd be our, our last category of biosignature. So life takes in the elements around it. Uh, and that those elements might be characteristic of a particular location or metabolism, let's say. Exactly. Could could be either or, but you can um, you get that fingerprint which represents uh, a location or an environment or an organism. So is that it, David? Is there anything else? Well, actually, I just remembered one other type of biosignature, and they are minerals, specifically biominerals. So what I mean is some organisms actually make their own minerals. In fact, you and I have already done this. We're, we're made of bones uh, as well as the other parts of us that you can see. And our bones uh, are made of calcium carbonate. Calcium phosphate. Calcium phosphate. <laughs> and so obviously we can, we can find calcium carbonates and calcium phosphates out there in the natural world as well. But if we find them in the shape of a bone somewhere we wouldn't expect them to form, then we might uh, infer that uh, biology was involved. So with microbes, we're probably looking at something like a, a microbe altering its near environment, its ambient environment to create a mineral that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a, a pure physical construction of a mineral. Yeah, we're looking for things out of place, I guess. And the same can be said for the organics and the isotopes. We might expect to find them being produced um, abiogenically, so by processes that don't involve life. But if we find them out of place, we find that isotope fractionation where we wouldn't expect it, where there's no natural explanation that doesn't involve life, then we can invoke life It's part of our story. So the, the combination of evidence is the key here. So one instrument or one bit of analysis alone is not going to tell the full story. Exactly. Surprisingly, there aren't many smoking guns. It's not as if we're going to get a yes, no answer. Um, from one feature. We really need to build up this story and multiple lines of circumstantial evidence to build a really convincing case. And look, as Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and we're going to need some really good evidence if we decide to declare we've found life on Mars. So you can't go to Mars, David. Where do you go to look for early life, which might relate to, to Mars? But we've got this planet here, which has been around for billions of years. We've got a great geological record here. So why don't we go out and have a look at that and let the features in there inform the design of our instruments we send to Mars and how we interpret the data we get back to them and from them. And that's exactly what we do here. And so um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, I got back from Northwestern Australia from a remote region of our country uh, called the, the Pilbara near the Great Sandy Desert. And I was out there with a bunch of students. Uh, we were looking for microbial fossils like stromatolites. So, so what's involved in, in field work in, in the Pilbara region? Well, it's pretty um, extreme and uh, remote. I mean, it's a very large region. There are people that live in the Pilbara area, mostly along the coast. But in our case, we wanted to go many hundreds of kilometers inland into the desert. 
And so we needed uh, a bunch of vehicles that had hundreds of litres of diesel and water and, and winches and things. And we had to bring all our own food in and uh, be very careful with uh, the things we did. We didn't want to, um, you know, hurt ourselves or, or get our vehicles stuck too badly, or we'd have to, we'd have to leave them there. The question everyone's wondering is their mobile phone reception. No mobile phone reception. It's one of the last places on earth you can escape your work emails, maybe remote Canada and um, Antarctica. You have to rely on the, uh, the trusty satellite phone, which is so cripplingly expensive, you, you're not expected to, to maintain communications. Well, I think that's an excellent place to leave it today. Thanks uh, for having me on, Luke. Uh, no problems. Anytime, David. <laughs> I guess uh, I'll see you next week. Hello and welcome to Mars. Come and check out some pictures.